<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. Well, a crazy alert here. Senate Bill 8 in Texas. Well, I'll read a little language from the bill. Anyone who knowingly engages in conduct that aids or abets the performance or inducement of an abortion, including paying for or reimbursing the cost of an abortion, regardless of whether the person knew or should have known that the violation violates state law can be fined a minimum of $10,000 in statutory damages. So you live in Texas and uh, you know that your neighbor just had an abortion and heard through the grapevine their kid told your kid something like that. You can now sue them for 10,000 bucks or you can sue a clinic or you can sue a doctor and you can do it hundreds of times and you can completely tie them up and totally screw everything all up for women's ability to get an abortion in Texas. This is where they want to take us. They want to take us back to a handmaid's tale. That's really the direction that they want to push this country. It is so very sad. Carrie Lucas is on the line with us. Carrie is the president of the Independent Women's Forum, the author of Checking Progressive Privilege. A mom of five. IWF.org is the website. Carrie Lucas, C-A-R-R-I-E-L-U-K-A-S is her Twitter handle. Carrie, welcome back. It's been a while since we've talked. Uh, th- thanks for joining us. Yeah. Question is, shouldn't we join the rest of the developed world in protecting and nurturing our children during their most critical developmental period, you know, the first three months of their lives? Uh, shouldn't we be providing women who were in the workplace and want to take three months off to care for their children? Shouldn't we make, be making that possible by at least giving them some support? When we talk about paid leave, I think it's really important to talk about what is like what already exists and where the holes are. Because you're right, there are too many people who fall through the cracks of our paid leave system, um, and we should be trying to find ways to help low-income women who don't have resources, don't have jobs that provide paid time off. We all want them to be able to take time off after they have a, a new baby for legitimate family purposes. Um, but I think we also make sure we don't disrupt. You know, there are obviously we do have a um, um, a lot of people out there. I bet most listeners, if you are working, if you have a job, most private employers provide paid time off. There's a lot of people out there who are happy with their existing benefit structures. 
And I think we should make sure that we don't disrupt that because I Why do not? think there's a real fear because a lot of people will end up being worse off. And we've seen this. Why? Wait, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Carrie. You're saying that if Joe Biden's plan passes and women get 12 weeks of three quarters of their regular salary, but they're getting it from the government instead of their employer during that time that they're off work. The employer is not hurt by this. They don't have to pay the employee and they don't have to pay the government. They just have to figure out what to do for 12 weeks while that person is home with their kids. You know, most employers, I think you're right, offer some sort of paid leave, although about half of America's employees, certainly low income employers offer nothing or very little. But you know, typically the most you get is a couple of weeks. Why not blow up two weeks and replace it with 12 weeks? It doesn't make any sense what you're saying. Tom, I think that you need to be careful on making assumptions. One thing that you've seen is um, is we talk about three quarters of pay, which is about what it would be replaced. Right. There are a lot of people out there who right now have six weeks off. You know, I'm a small employer. I employ about 20 women. I have people, you know, it's all women. We have um, a lot of people have babies and we provide six weeks off at full pay. That's unusual. Um, and then we, you I know, mean, I congratulations on you, but that's unusual. Uh, you, you know, if you worked at McDonald's, you would not be getting you know, six weeks off with, with pay. Sure. I, if I, or at Walmart. Absolutely. If I worked at, if or I worked at, at McDonald's or Walmart. Absolutely, Tom. I am 100% with you when we talk about trying to help low-income folks have have better support systems. Um, but let's remember, right now there are there's state paid leave, um, there are government paid leave programs in several states, and that covers something like a quarter of all workers are already covered by a state You're, paid leave. In system. blue so states, we do need to be. Fine. In blue states, fine. But do you... So what about the poor women in red states? Gary, you're a conservative. Well, but, well, fine. You know, and I do think... How many employers do you think in Mississippi and Alabama offer anything? Tom, if you look at the data, if you look at the Census Bureau and the Bureau of Labor Statistics, most people do have access to paid time off. It's not always sufficient, and we do need to find more ways to help people. But if you look at the state paid leave programs, what you will find is that it is almost overwhelmingly, it is um, much people who are higher income are much more likely to take the benefits than people who have lower income. Right. This is also the same in Europe. If you're just getting by, having something that provides three quarters of your pay, you can't take off that time. So in, in California, they've found, because remember, this money comes from somewhere, and the way that it's paid for is by a payroll tax. So let's remember that every single worker will be paying a payroll tax on every dollar they earn. So every worker will be paying for this. Those who take it will be taking money out. But what we've seen, and, and this is actually, there's interesting studies about um, what happened to the EU, and they've, they've found that it is a, a transfer of wealth from poor to rich because of who ends up, ends up taking it. Your higher income folks are more likely to make use of the benefits. I think we should be fine. I, let's I, talk about solving the problems, Kerry. but not. Tom, uh, I can you send know, you the link. There's there's a lot of very uh, interesting research. It's the um, same in Rhode Island and California and New Jersey. You know, I think, I, yeah, and I'm sure you can find you know anecdotal evidence of that that may be the, the exception that proves the rule. But what we're talking about here is every developed country in the world, except the United States, provides government-supported paid leave for people. For women who, and many of them, for husbands too. If you know, if, if they want to be the the caregiver, and this isn't just for children. This is this is also for bereavement, for people being victims of uh, sexual assault or domestic violence, for a loved one's military deployment. We're saying, you know, let's join the rest of the world and give that spouse, give that partner. Give that family yeah, three 12 months off weeks every year of space. Essentially any reason. You know, you can't be like, let's, everybody should not work for three months every year. It's, it's, not, it's not every you know, Here's reason. the thing, Tom. These but, are the reasons but, why Thomas, people take time off. 
Here's, a, but here's something you should know, and I do think that people should be careful of what they wish for, especially women out there, because you're, you're right. Women in, um, in Europe do enjoy tremendous family benefits, but you know what they also have? Larger wage gaps. They're much less likely than American women to be in, uh, in management. That has and, nothing um, to know, do with As this. an employer... No, yes, it does. The OECD, there's a, come to visit us at IWF.org. You will see links both on the, the, um, the redistributional effects of paid leave programs, which show that it is hurts poor people and helps rich people. And then also it looks at, um, in the, um, in the OECD countries, uh, women are much less likely to reach upper management. And as somebody, if you actually are thinking about hiring somebody for a job of responsibility, if they, if you think a childbearing year woman or a woman with a bunch of kids like me, I got five kids, I have a lot of reasons to take off. My kids are sick a lot. You know, there's a lot of things that, that go wrong. A lot of employers, if they knew that any time I might take off three months for one of these, for one of these reasons, they're not going to give me a position of authority. Um, you know, big companies may be, uh, they, but may it, be able to. But it covers men as well as women, Carrie. But they don't, men don't use this, it as much, this, um, and I, they don't I, use it in EU. They don't use it in the EU as much, and they wouldn't use it here as much, and employers will know it. Well, so that's a whole what they, completely what they look separate for. issue. I mean, if that's the side effect of this, and it's widespread, and I'm not believing it is. If that's the side effect and it's widespread, then you deal with that. But right now, we've got people who, I mean, you know, we're, we're hurting our children, Carrie. You think government should be paying for people who are in the top 1%? I think that- Or people it, should be paying payroll taxes for, for a woman making a million dollars a year. Sure, yeah. This is your argument. You know, oh, should, should Charles Koch get Social Security? Yes, he should. Yes, he's a billionaire. Well, that's of course. That's why it's called an entitlement. Everyone's entitled for the, to it. For the ultra wealthy. There you go. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Carrie Lewis with the Independent Women's Forum, IWF.org. Check it out, and you can tweet her at Carrie Lucas. Thanks, Carrie. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is by Pat Mitchell. It's titled Becoming a Dangerous Woman, Embracing Risk to Change the World. This is from the preface titled The Most Dangerous Woman in the Room. Yes, I'll be there. Eve Ensler was calling with an invitation to what she described as the meeting of movements planned for the first week of January 2017. In the wake of a polarizing presidential election in the United States, Eve had decided it was time for activists to come together to shape strategies that would unify and leverage the collective power of a wide range of social justice organizations. Who else is coming, I asked. I'm not releasing the invitation list, Eve replied, but you'll want to be in the room. Indeed, I did want to be in that room, knowing from past experiences that any meeting or event that Eve organized would be meaningful. So I showed up, as the invitation indicated, at a nondescript building in Stone Ridge, New York, and surrendered my cell phone to the smiling young volunteers at the front door. Best to have all communication devices outside the room, was the explanation, which of course heightened my anticipation about what would transpire within the room. I entered a large room and saw Eve standing at the front with folding chairs in a circle. Mingling about the room were some familiar faces. The meeting's other conveners, Kimberly Crenshaw of the African American Policy Forum, Naomi Klein, award-winning author and activist, independent media entrepreneur and journalist Laura Flanders, and Jane Fonda, actor and activist. We were asked to find our seats, and Eve began. We are living in dangerous times, was her opening line, and such times call for new levels of activism from all the communities represented in this room. Let's begin by identifying who's in the room. One by one, the introductions began. I'm one of the founders of the Women's March. 
I'm the executive director of 350.org. I run Project South. With each introduction, the level of leadership and activists' credentials became more impressive and, for me, more intimidating. I could feel my anxiety building. How was I going to identify myself? I have no title and was no longer running an organization, having left my CEO position at the Paley Center for Media the previous spring. I could say that I was the CEO of Pat Mitchell Media with its grand total of two employees, including myself, but that felt wholly inadequate to explain why I belonged in that room. I mentally rehearsed some other options. I could say I was a lifetime advocate for women, true enough, if a little vague. I could list some of my previous titles, but why make a point of being the former anything? I was struggling with, to come up with how to identify myself in the present, an identity that would hopefully give some indication of why Eve had included me in this circle of activists and leaders. Finally, it was my turn. Before I knew it, I heard myself saying, I'm Pat Mitchell and I'm a dangerous woman. I'm not sure exactly what prompted this personal declaration of dangerousness, but I could tell from the looks of surprise that I needed to add a bit more context. At this time in my life, about to turn 75, I continued, I have nothing left to prove, less to lose, and I'm ready to take more risks and to be less politic and polite. As Eve said, these are dangerous times, and dangerous times call for dangerous women. That got a big sisterly yes from Eve and others in the circle, including Jane Fonda, who was sitting across from me, and stood up declaring, well, I'm older than my friend Pat, so that makes me even more dangerous. Laughter erupted, of course, and I could sense that others were contemplating exactly what becoming more dangerous to meet the challenges of dangerous times would mean for each of us and for the work we had convened to consider. Certainly, Jane Fonda's life of activism is a textbook case for being bold and brave, during our many years of friendship, I've, I'd witnesses, I've witnessed her willingness to take risks for a good cause, to speak out and show up, even when it meant personal peril or sacrifice. At 81, she is still on the front lines, campaigning for domestic and restu restaurant workers' rights, standing with the American Indian communities, protesting natural resource exploitation at Standing Rock, and busier as an actor than ever. In her book, Prime Time, Jane advanced the idea that Older women have the potential to become the most powerful population on the planet. She's a great example of how we embrace that potential at every age. My personal potential for becoming dangerous is perhaps more directly linked to my friendship with Eve Ensler. From our first conversation in war-torn Sarajevo in 1998, I've been deeply inspired by her courage and her commitment to do whatever is necessary to end violence against women everywhere. Taking risks comes easier to Eve than to many, writing and performing the vagina monologues, making it the centerpiece of a global movement, V-Day, to end gender-based violence, is a transformative approach to activism that I feel privileged to have experienced. Yes, I was an activist and woman's advocate before I met Eve, but through my relationship with her and as a board member of the V-Day movement, I've met activists facing dangers every day to create change in some of the most difficult places on earth to be a woman. But until that day, I had not felt dangerous myself. Declaring myself a dangerous woman still feels a bit, well, dangerous. And I readily admit to some second thoughts about declaring it even more widely and boldly as the title of this book. But every day since that convening, I'm discovering more about what being dangerous means in my life and why I believe that it's time for us, women and the men who stand with us, at whatever age or place in life's journey to embrace risks and engage with renewed passion and collective purpose 
in making the world a safer place for women and girls. Pat Mitchell, Becoming a Dangerous Woman. Diana in Preston, Idaho. Hey, Diana, what's up? Hey, I wanted to talk about sexual taboos. The ancient kings and aristocracy, and religious leaders, too, spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to control and manipulate the masses. And they found one of the most effective ways was to create sexual taboos, which led to oppression. The basic function of a taboo is to so cripple the mind of its victims with intimidation as to make them incapable of correctly identifying the facts. And the royal families had no sexual taboos. They needed fodder, fodder for their wars, and they understood if a man was happy at home, he's not so anxious to leave his wife and family to fight some king's war. But if he's unhappy at home and his wife is turned into a shrew because she's unhappy, he can't wait to leave home to murder, rape, and pillage. Hmm. Interesting theory. I always saw this in the realm of religion rather than governance. For example, this is from New York Times. It's about this murderer who killed six Asian women and and two other people down in Georgia. The first paragraph, he checked himself into a rehab clinic for a self-described sexual addiction. He was so intent on avoiding pornography that he blocked websites from his computer and only used a flip phone. He worried to a roommate about falling out of God's grace. His former roommate says that he lived with him at a halfway house near Atlanta. Nearly once a month, a killer would admit that he had again relapsed by visiting a massage parlor for sex, his roommate said. And he once asked his roommate to take his computer away from him, which doesn't make him any less of a murderer and doesn't make this any less of a racial crime. But the point is that this is what religion can do to people when it's used as a weapon, when it's weaponized. And I'm seeing, you know, religion being used in this way, twisting people sexually. And I think that it's... uh, very unfortunate. It's very unfortunate. And then you get the hypersexualization in the minds of, of these white men about Asian women, and that just you know puts it on, on steroids, as it were. Carrie in New Windsor, New York, you wanted to speak to this issue? Oh my gosh, that is amazing. That woman is amazing who just, that's wow. And your um, updated news about what they found out about the uh, the Georgia femicide, that murderer. That's amazing. Yeah. Thank you, Tom. Yeah, I yes. just, I looked into it. I've been keeping up on it a little bit. What she just said, the people in power have always been less in numbers than the masses. So the people in mm-hmm. power have always done stuff throughout history to suppress the masses. So if you want to make sex taboo, that's perfect because then you're thinking about it more and you can't just like relieve yourself and like then go on with your day. You're like totally sexually frustrated and just a mess. This is Women's History Month, and I got sexually harassed multiple times verbally, right? Multiple times. Like, I'm so tired of it. And anyway, so if we want more women to be leaders, then we have to talk about women's issues more. I agree. Like, this guy, right, he doesn't know. I know so many hippies and pics that are and were 21 years old. When I was 21 years old, I thought that news was mind clutter. They don't pay attention to the news, you know, like if they're, especially if they're like uneducated, why should they? The news is like negative and gross, the TV news, you know, so mostly, and there's a newspaper called Positive News, by the way, so it doesn't have to be all negative fires and, you know, car accidents, but all right. So right in front of me, I have um, the kid with... I got it. I'm sorry, Carrie, we're out of time. 
I was going to say, I, I always thought that Queen Victoria, who imposed all those taboos on the British, did so because she had been raped or something when she was younger. I wonder, though, given the previous caller and, and Carrie's comments, I wonder if it was a, a way of social control. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. I don't know that much about the history of Victorian England, uh, you know, and particularly the sexual mores of the time, but it's a fascinating question. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's, or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. James in Seattle. Hey, James, what's on your mind today? Hi, I think I can tie in abortion, incel, and billionaires together. Okay. The, um, in the Old Testament, there's only one thing about that. It gives the, God gives man, the husband, the contractor, the right to determine the value of the fetus that was Correct. And that's what if, if the woman is struck by another man who causes it, which causes her to miscarry, then the husband gets to decide how much he has to be paid for that. Yes, you're right. It's in Deuteronomy. Yeah, and that's what they're trying. That's what they're trying to ban. That right to determine the value of the fetus. It's a double-edged sword. If you make a law that gives the state the right to ban that medical procedure, because it doesn't stop there. Because then, mm-hmm. it, besides making her a slave. It also gives them the right to enforce a medical procedure like sterilization. And this is exactly what they did to those Latino girls at the border detention center in Georgia, where the ice. And that's what we did to Native Americans for for over 100 years all across the United States. Yeah, and that's what they want. And not only that, but the establishment at the center got rid of the evidence for them. That's what the incels want. The billionaire class comes into this because... They need to have lots of people who are generational poor because the top 20% gets half of the uh, of the income, and that's the kind of uh, uh, capitalism that that's functional. 
Yeah, now, it's, it's actually less than the top the, 1% that has about half the, well, half the wealth in the United States. I don't know about income. Forgive the interruption, yeah, James. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm saying the top 20%, they, uh, half of it. Mm-hmm. Now, today, of course, the, 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 so the, what's you your know, point? The, the predatory one is getting 43%, or last time I checked. That means right. the bottom 80% gets only 7%. That's why the police squeeze everybody and that kind of stuff, because they're making people poor. That's what they're doing for the billionaire class. The billionaire class of 666 families doesn't actually do anything. A $250,000 a year manager probably could do a better job, except for a few of these billionaires. Thanks for sharing your opinions, and I can't disagree on on most of them. I do I do want to point out, and I, I, I wrote about this a couple of days ago over at harvinreport.com, that back in the 50s, Republican philosopher Russell Kirk said if the middle class gets too wealthy, it's going to create social chaos. And in the 60s, when you had the women's movement, the civil rights movement, and the anti-war movements all happened at the same time, that was the moment when the Republicans decided we've got to take the middle class down a notch. These people are too wealthy, feeling too brave. They're out there protesting in the streets. The women, African-Americans, young people, we've got to stop that. And they put Ronnie Reagan in office and gave him the mandate of stripping out some of the wealth of the American middle class, which he did, largely through destroying unions and lowering taxes on rich people. Get my daily writings where I take on the big picture issues of our day at HartmanReport.com. Our book today is uh, Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism and Other Arguments for Economic Independence by Kristen Godsey. And this is from the introduction titled, You Might Be Suffering from Capitalism. The argument of this book can be summed up succinctly. Unregulated capitalism is bad for women. And if we adopt some ideas from socialism, women will have better lives. If done properly, socialism leads to economic independence, better labor conditions, better work-family balance, and yes, even better sex. Finding a way into a better future requires learning from the mistakes of the past, including a thoughtful assessment of the history of 20th century state socialism in Eastern Europe. That's it. If you like the idea of such outcomes, then come along for an exploration of how we might change things. If you're dubious because you don't understand why capitalism as an economic system is uniquely bad for women, and if you doubt that there could ever be anything good about socialism, this short treatise will provide some illumination. If you don't give a wit about women's lives because you're a gynophobic right-wing internet troll, save your money and go back to your parents' basement right now. Of course, some might argue that unregulated capitalism sucks for almost everyone, but I want to focus on how capitalism disproportionately harms women. Competitive labor markets discriminate against those whose reproductive biology makes them primarily responsible for childbearing. Today, this means humans who get pink hats in the hospital and the letter F next to the name on the birth certificate as if we've already failed by not coming into the world as a boy. Competitive labor markets also devalue those expected to be the primary caregivers of children. Although societal attitudes have evolved in this regard, our idealization of motherhood means that most of us still believe that baby needs mama a whole lot more than papa, at least until the child is old enough to play sports. Others will argue that unregulated capitalism is not bad for all women. Yes, for those women lucky enough to sit at the top of the income distribution, the system works pretty well although women at the executive level still face gender pay gaps and remain underrepresented in leadership positions, on the whole, things aren't too shabby for the Sheryl Sandbergs of the world. Of course, sexual harassment still hinders progress, even for those at the top, and too many women believe that if you want to run with the big dogs, 
you may have to suck it up and ignore the groping and unwanted advances. And race plays an important role as well. White women do a lot better in aggregate than do women of color. But when we look at society as a whole, on average, women are comparatively worse off in countries where markets are less encumbered by regulation, taxation, and public enterprises than they are in nations where state revenues support greater levels of redistribution and larger social safety nets. Employers discriminate against women without children because they might have them in the future. In the United States in 2013, women over the age of 65 suffered from poverty at much greater rates than men and dominated those in the category of extreme poverty. Globally, women face higher rates of economic deprivation. Women are often the last to be hired and the first to be fired in cyclical downturns. And when they do find employment, bosses pay them less than men. When states need to slash government spending on education, health care, or old age pensions, mothers, daughters, sisters, and wives must pick up the slack, diverting their energy to care for the young, the sick, and the elderly. Capitalism thrives on women's unpaid labor in the home because women's care work supports lower taxes. Lower taxes mean higher profits for those already at the top of the income ladder, mostly men. But slowly, socialist championing of women's emancipation began to chip away at the leave it to beaver ideal. The Soviet launch of Sputnik in 1957 spurred American leaders to rethink the costs of maintaining traditional gender roles. They feared the state socialists enjoyed an advantage in technological development and why women have better sex under socialism. Tom Harmon here with you and uh, Denise in Calumet, Michigan. Hey, Denise, what's on your mind today? Well, I just wanted to tell you, our little town of Calumet has been overrun by Republican Trumpsters, and we had a cafe on Fifth Street that refused to close during the shutdown, and they refused to mask, refused to social distance, and refused to have their employees do so. It got to the point where she was on one of those um, Fund Me pages, Go Send Fund or whatever that was mentioned earlier today, mm -hmm. and it got to the point that these people with their trucks and their automatic weapons were standing outside and they were protecting her and her brothers from even having to close the place. And the authorities in our area um, personally told me that they weren't going to go and shut them down even though they were told to. Um, they actually gave the name of the person that was ticketing them from the health department and put her life in danger. And people... You know, when the guns were out there, people in, in the other stores were kind of like locking their doors and, and not letting anybody in. Mm. They brought imminent danger to our town, not just by spreading COVID, but by having our town turn into what the authorities told me was a powder keg. And if they had come and tried to close her, there would have been shooting and death in our little town of Calumet. Eventually, she got ticketed, finally made an agreement to close, but she was open for months on end. And this is what our town has become. It's really yeah, it's scary. And everybody's like, but this is part of a, a Lutheran church where um, they believe that they have to keep multiplying because they're the only ones going to, going to heaven. And so all these people are, like, overtaking our town. It's just really scary. That's that's so sad. And, you know, one of the things that is really pushing this stuff is Facebook and it's Russian trolls on Facebook and not just Russian. Actually, apparently Saudi trolls are pushing this stuff mm -hmm. as well. You know, the masks don't do any good and it's all made up and it's all a hoax. And, you know, all this kind of BS that, they, that they're pushing. And you've got these low income folks 
Well, actually, they're not all low income. Let's say high gullibility folks. I don't even want to insult their IQs because some of them are smart. They believe what they read, and it's just, it's really sad. Denise, thank you for the update. I'm so sorry to hear, and uh, I hope that uh, Calumet can get back to normal along with the rest of America. I just, I just pray that, that you know, that's our future. Richard in Stockett, uh, Montana. Hey, Richard, what's up? I'm a cattle rancher, Montana Army veteran, and by the way, I have no use for the bubble militia. But it seems after the Civil War, the disaffected Confederates enabled uh, themselves to get into the rural states and uh, take over instead of genocide against blacks. They went after Native American tribes, but I want to go back to the founding fathers. Uh, I think they set up rural America in their vision with the Electoral College and two senators per rural state. So where would those founding fathers, especially the ones from the South, sit on the filibuster? What would, what would you think they'd say about that now? They would be universally opposed to it because they were at the time. Um, Madison and Hamilton both wrote extensively about the importance that both the House and the Senate operate along majority rules. Um, it wasn't until Madison was dead uh, he was long dead by, uh, I think it was 1837, 1838, when uh, John C. Calhoun, the father of the Confederacy, introduced the filibuster into the Senate rules. Um, all of the founders were dead by that time. Um, they would have been just plain old, flat-out horrified by it, Richard. Well, what would the SCOTUS say about that, if they're originalist uh, thinking like Scalia, saying it's not in the Constitution, you know? Well, God only knows what Scalia would say, but, but, but I, think, <laughs> well, I think your point well, is... <laughs> I, I have no use for the bubble militia. I'm, an, I'm a retired colonel, and they are just uh, scum of the earth, in my opinion. So. Well, we've got, we've got a, we have a problem. We have a problem with people who think that yes. you know, they are the military, and they're not. Richard, thank you very much for the call. Right, Thanks thank for you. the thoughtful call from rural Montana. I appreciate it. Meredith in Wallensburg, Colorado. Hey, Meredith, what's on your mind today? Wallensburg. <laughs> Wallensburg, thank you. Lauren Bober is my congresswoman. Oh, my. And we're going to try and get rid of her if we can. I wanted to tell you that she voted against the Act for Violence Against Women. Mm. Uh, I think that's because it has a provision that says that men who have a history of abusing their wives no longer qualify to buy guns. And she's all about guns. That's that's her that's her oh, one thing. Oh, yeah. But she said it was because of abortion. She didn't want women to have any power to stop abortion. Really? That's what she said. <laughs> She's a woman. It's really disgusting. <laughs> yeah, it really is. And frankly, sad. Anne in Alameda, California. Hey, Anne, what's on your mind today? Hi. I was listening to um, <clears throat> the gal who was talking about family leave oh, and Carrie other Lucas. benefits. Yeah. Yeah, I lived in uh, Italy for 25 years, and they had the benefits that you've been talking about. Mm -hmm. But the conversation was about what they were doing in France. The French government, the leaders of the society, realized, and I'm talking 50 or more years ago, that French women were not having enough babies. They were headed for demographic decline, and they were worried about demographic decline. Now, um... French industry could, you know, they have all these former colonies in Africa. So, you know, you could import workers from Morocco or Algeria or wherever, or Sierra Leone, uh, Senegal, they all spoke French, but they wouldn't be French if you are picking up the part can't say out loud. Right. So they were all worried about French women not having enough babies, so they put in all kinds of what we would think of as super progressive policies, paying families and the daycare and the whole bitch, a whole bunch of uh, policies. If you, if you position this discussion right, 
you could have every right winger in the country screaming about daycare centers. Oh, so in other words, the French were saying we're not having enough white babies. I mean, let's just say this Don't clearly. Don't say that word out loud. Right. We're not having enough white babies, and so we need to put into place all kinds of social subsidies rather than um, bring immigrants into the country because we're going to start seeing a decline in our population, and we view that as a negative thing. Um, uh, Don't say that out loud. You know, in the, in the whites, uh, among the white supremacist message boards, you will uh -huh. find people who will just come right out and say that the reason that they are opposed to abortion is because white women are, are, are you know, because wh the white population is not growing fast enough in America. And that, you know, and, and, and in fact, there are discussions trying to figure out, well, how do, you keep, how do you keep abortion legal for black people and not for white people? And, you know, I mean, weird stuff like this. They're, they're actually, you know, as, like having like pseudo-intellectual discussions about this. You know, well, you know, maybe we could make it legal in the cities, you know, and, and make it harder to get in the rural areas, and, uh, yeah, I, which is actually what they're doing, you know. Um, and and uh, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. It's all about daycare centers and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I'm not willing to racialize the uh, the debate here in the United States in order to get conservatives on our side. <laughs> Just and I get it that the French did it. I mean, you know, that's one of the reasons why Marine Le Pen may become president. Um, it's kind of unfortunate. Um, although I think that uh, they're, they're getting a lot of outside interference via Facebook and other social media, but remarkable stuff. And thank you for that. And uh, yeah, good talking with you. Thanks. And thanks Great for show. yeah. Uh, thank you. And, and 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 you know, you're hearing it from somebody who lived in Europe for for 25 years. That's Anne. You know, who just called. Um, and it is actually part of the conversation here in the United States, and it's fascinating. You know, in a way that the economic conservatives are winning the argument in Republican circles over the racial conservatives. And I wonder how long that's going to last. You know, at what point is Trump going to come out and say, yes, we need more, more of these programs so that we have more white babies. Oh, God. And along with us is Professor Richard Wolff, the economist, the co-founder of democracyatwork.info, the author of numerous books. His most recent, The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, also now available as an e-book, democracyatwork.info, rdwolf with two fs.com. You can tweet him at profwolf uh, with two fs. Don't forget the two fs. Professor Wolf, welcome back. So glad to have you with us. I, I uh, uh, forwarded to you a, an Axios newsletter this morning. It was talking about how, you know, one of the problems with our economy is that when wealthy people uh, make money or make more money, they don't spend it into the economy, so it doesn't stimulate the economy. Whereas when poor people run out of money, they can no longer spend it in the economy, and they're the ones that hold the economy up. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering your, your thoughts on how important that concept is, B, why more Americans don't get it, C, what we can do about this. It's very important. Americans don't get it because of the teachers uh, who teach us economics, either in the school or in the public arena or in the media, uh, don't explain it well enough or often enough. And the solution is terribly easy. Let me explain. I was among most of the students in my classes in economics as I went through the university who figured out, partly by what the teachers did tell us, 
that the following sentence is true. The poorer you are, the more likely you are to take any money that comes your way and spend it because you're barely getting by. That's what it means to be poor. So the government knows that to give money to middle or lower income people is to have that money plowed right back into the economy, purchasing goods and services. Whereas if you are rich, you are probably already living pretty well, pretty high off the proverbial hog, and you will likely do a good bit of saving, of not spending whatever extra money you get since you're already rich. The reason this is important is that you, if you have an economic problem, as we do, and the government wants to step in and do something about it, which is what the leaders of our country say they want to do, then the logical priority would be to give the most money to the people at the bottom. And that's why you can, I can explain to you why Americans don't know it, because the folks at the top do not want an economic policy that would, heaven forbid, tax them on the grounds that they have it, and then pass it out to the people at the bottom, because they would do more to stimulate the economy than giving it to people uh, at the top. And what can we do about it? Easy. Change the policy mix make the policies go where not only is the need greatest that is in the middle and lower levels of our income but also where the the economic punch uh, will be the greatest every dollar you give and there's plenty of studies that show it every dollar you give to the lower half of the population produces many dollars of spending by those people and everybody they spend on who's likewise like them and therefore likely to take Take that money and spend it again. So it, it's really a simple lesson of the way a capitalist economy works, but we don't act on it because those at the top do not want to go where the logic here points. And, and, and most of this conversation uh, that you and I have been having has been in the context of government policy that would be supportive, government policy that would be supportive of working class people and poor people. Um, uh, you know, things that would support them that they would otherwise have to pay for, things like health care or education, um, child care, things like that. Um, but uh, let's put this in the context also of wages. Um, at, you know, in the previous hour, I had a conservative caller who was just all bent out of shape by the, by the fact that in South Carolina, where he lived, there were help wanted signs and, and, and people were saying, you know, I'm not willing to work for 12 bucks an hour or $10 an hour or whatever. Um, you know, I used to have a good job, and, and I've got a mortgage now, and I can't afford to work for that kind of wage. Um, talk, talk about, and, and, and so it seems to me that what that is, you know, what that situation is going to do, we've lost 8 million jobs that are not coming back now because so many businesses have just shuttered, and other businesses have figured, hey, this is a great excuse or opportunity to tighten up our operations and shed some people um, between those two things. Um, so... How, is it is it not possible that this um, shortage of workers, shall we say, uh, euphemistically, um, is going to drive up wages, which is going to stimulate the economy, which is going to help all of us? Yeah, you know, it, it, it's always been a mystery to me, uh, Tom. We have this phrase that Americans know called trickle-down economics. Right. The idea being you should have a policy giving money to the people at the top, which is indeed what we mostly have, and we shouldn't object because it will trickle down. The people at the top will take the money and they will hire the rest of us and all of that. You very rarely hear 
trickle-up economics, which makes much more sense, because we know that if you give money to the people at the bottom, they'll spend it. And precisely as you said, we don't know anything of the sort by giving money to people at the top. And yet, trickle-down economics is a common phrase. Trickle-up, when I articulate it, has people raise their eyebrows wondering, you know, what I'm talking about. And and raising wages is the best possible trickle-up economics you can do. Because, again, you know that people, particularly those earning under $15 an hour these days, are people who are on the very edge, cannot save anything, will spend every nickel they have because the cost of living requires no less. And, look, it's no achievement if what we do is starve out the mass of our people, force them to work at 10 or 11 or $12 an hour because you've taken away, as 21 states now have done, the extra $300 that was supposed to help them through the worst public health disaster in a century. I mean, what kind of a society does that? And what kind of a life are you giving to those people to whom you are saying, work for very little, live on next to nothing, or will make it even worse for you. This is a society that has lost the ability to take care of huge portions of its population, and the social and long-term historical costs of that outweigh all these other considerations. Yeah, and, and I mean, just consider the damage done to children of growing up in yes. poverty. I mean, it, it's, right. it's, it's truly mind-boggling. So. Uh, are you seeing, we, we have about a minute and a half left, uh, Professor Wolf, are you seeing in this uh, so-called worker shortage an actual optimistic sign? I, I, I think I am, I, that, or that was, that was the point I was trying to make. Well, I think there's an element of that. I wish that were all there was. Yes, there are people who are saying, we've now gone through really uh, hell and back here with this COVID, with the economic crash at the same time. We're not about to go and, and come out of the other end of that with an awful job, awful circumstances, bad pay, poor benefits. It's really outrageous to impose that on us at the same time that the billionaires in our country have gotten much richer. I mean, there is a kind of protest here, and I certainly, certainly celebrate that. But I'm also, and I can't say this in a nice way, I'm depressed at the very thought that something like this is serious policy. I just read a statistic that half of the retail stores scheduled to be open uh, this year in 2021 will be in the dollar chain, you know, Dollar General, Family Dollar. These are the stores for the poorest of the poor. That's the only place this economy now thinks it can grow. And that is a statement that ought to make everyone, including those at the top of this society, sit up and take notice. That is mind-boggling. And you said 21 states now have cut off uh, unemployment benefits? The That's right. 21 states have taken away the extra $300 Whoa. purely to force those people to go to work at jobs that they do not want and should not be forced to take. Incredible. Professor Richard Wolf, democracyatwork.info, Prof Wolf on Twitter. Thank you, sir. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. 
With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Lewis in Granite Falls, Washington, listening to us on KBCS, where we are live right now. Hey, Lewis, you're on the air. What's up? I, I got it. <laughs> Professor Hartman, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Um, Real quickly... If your outgo is more than your income, your upkeep will be your downfall. <laughs> well said. Well said, Lewis. So what, what I was trying to say is I belong to the 302 Operators Union. When mm-hmm. I work, I make $47 an hour. Whoa. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm uh, retired and I get my Social Security and the pension. But when I want to work, you know, I pick up the phone, I go to work. I just want that for everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, the feeling that it gives you. The satisfaction that you can pay your bills and uh, and like if you don't run your show right, if I don't run my accounts right, we're not going to be here. How come the government and everybody else don't have to do that? Yeah, well, the government doesn't have to run the way a business runs, uh, mostly because the government produces the money. Uh, you know, government prints money, businesses don't, and so government has uh, it, they they can do a lot of things in a lot of ways that a business can't, a family can't. Um, but that setting that aside, I think your point that everybody should have a decent job and a decent income is not only an excellent point and well made, uh, Lewis, but also I think is is something that needs to be said more often. And thank you for saying it on our air. I appreciate the call, Lewis. And welcome back, Tom Harbin here with you. A lot of economic news. The Clean Energy Act, which will ultimately become part of American Jobs Plan, which is, you know, the infrastructure plan, the way that the Democrats are putting these things together, like the way that they put together um, the, the COVID relief plan, uh, I think that was called the American Rescue Plan. You know, they're coming up with these, the Biden administration's coming up with these names for these programs that always end in the word plan. I think it's kind of cool. It's a, it's a great branding exercise. I'm so glad to see Democrats actually engaging in branding. But so the COVID relief, you know, the American Rescue Plan, the COVID relief one that has already passed, was actually, uh, what they did was they took a whole bunch of pieces of legislation, individual bills that dealt with individual issues that had already gone through committee in the House of Representatives, had already been vetted, basically. They, you know, the the committees had, and they'd already passed the committee, and they had already passed the House of Representatives, most of, almost all of them, and you know, just died in the Senate. And so, when they needed a piece of legislation quick, what they did is they took took, took a whole bunch of pieces 
a whole bunch of other pieces of legislation, smaller pieces, combined them all together into one giant bill and said, here you go, here's the American Rescue Plan. Well, they are planning to do the same thing with the American Jobs Plan. They are passing these pieces, and, and they're hard at work doing this in the House of Representatives, and they've got this deadline coming up, you know, of, uh, of the holiday, the, the summer holiday. The Congress takes off, I, I think it's a seven or eight weeks, something like that. We can't, we can't have paid family leave, but Congress sure does get, you know, a couple of months off. Anyway, don't, don't get me started on that. Um, so what they're doing is they're passing the pieces. And they just yesterday passed a really important piece of this. Mark Sumner wrote about it over at Daily Kos with the headline, Clean Energy for America Act passed out of committee with a $12,500 credit for electric vehicles. This is cool. They are reversing the incentives. Right now, we give tax dollars, your tax dollars, my tax dollars, and of course the borrowed money that, you know, our, that our country also operates on. We are taking that money and giving it to the fossil fuel industry. We are giving it to them as cash. We are giving it to them as massive tax breaks. We're giving it to them as tax incentives. We're giving it to them in just a whole variety of ways. And so what this uh, piece of legislation is called the Clean Energy for America Act, but it's going to become part of the American Jobs Plan, right? But what this piece does is it ends those fossil fuel subsidies. We're talking billions of dollars a year. Now, now you can understand why, uh, you know, fossil fuel companies and, and Charles Koch, you know, fossil fuel billionaire, um, other fossil fuel billionaires, big, big companies, even though they're getting whacked by now their shareholders and, and of course, the whole thing in Shell, uh, you know, with the Royal Dutch Shell, but with the uh, Dutch government, the, the, basically their Supreme Court saying you've got to cut your emissions by 45% by the end of the decade, um, you know, which is all great news. But now you get why these conservatives are so hysterical about stopping the American Jobs Plan, the infrastructure bill. They're going to do everything they can to block this thing. And it's going to get really hot in the next week or two. Why? Because this piece of it is going to take billions, perhaps hundreds of billions, certainly over a period of a decade, hundreds of billions of dollars of taxpayer money that would have just been given to the fossil fuel industry, it's going to take it away from the fossil fuel industry or stop giving it to them, and instead use that money to subsidize clean energy. If you buy an all-electric vehicle, they're going to restore this tax incentive. Uh, there's going to be a base rebate of $7,500. If you buy an all-electric vehicle that was uh, made in the United States, there's an additional $2,500 uh, tax credit that you get. And these are tax credits, by the way. This, this comes right off your taxes at the end of the year. This doesn't come off your income. This is not a deduction. This is a credit. Tax credits are hugely more useful to taxpayers, to average middle-class taxpayers, than our tax uh, deductions. So there's an additional $2,500 tax credit if, it's, if the car is made in the United States. And then there's a third $2,500 tax credit if you buy an all-electric car, now this is on top of the $7,500 base credit, on top of the $2,500 made in the United States, there's a third $2,500 that you get as a tax credit if that car was manufactured using union labor. Another reason 
why these non-union you know employers, the the WalMarts of the world, the Amazons of the world, the uh, the you know the Coke Industries of the world, uh, these non-union employers are also going to be lobbying against this. Oh my God, you're giving people a tax credit of $2,500 for simply buying a car made with union labor? That's going to that's encourage more union labor. We can't have that. It's amazing. Oh, and by the way, it doesn't apply to vehicles, to luxury vehicles. If the car you're thinking of buying costs more than 80 grand, no tax credit for you. So, you know, the electric Hummers, yes, they're coming out with electric Hummers. They don't qualify for this. But, you know, normal people, average people, everyday cars, it's great. Mary in Panama City, Florida. Hey, Mary, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I've talked to you before. You're great. Uh, you. Yeah, I, I'm calling about the economy and that. I'm one of the baby boomers. And when back then, we, we started working at seven and eight years old, shoveling snow and everything and throwing papers. And I started waiting tables at 13. I'm 74 years old now. And when COVID start, started, I lost my job as a waitress. And never got called back, and I've been trying for over a year to get my unemployment. Couldn't get through to them, and now it's I started Florida, right? working. Yeah, and now I'm in. I just got a job at Burger King, making ten fifty an hour. Oh my! Which is more than I've ever <laughs> made, but it's not enough when you've got medications and doctors and mortgages and everything. And I, uh, me and a, my very dear friend who is a disabled veteran, uh, we're, we're helping each other, and it's still not enough. And I think the Republicans ought to get off their rear ends and let Biden take care of us American people who have worked for this country all our lives. I'm with you, Murray. I'm absolutely with you. And, and, and yeah, I, a lot. I was Go ahead. I was hoping we would get some more stimulus checks, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And this idea that people don't want to work is just nuts. Mary, thank you. Thank you for sharing your story. It's, you know, uh, and, and a lot of us started out, quote, working when we were young. I, I had a newspaper route when I was, what, eight, I think, nine years old, something like that. Um, but that's a whole different thing from trying to support your family or trying to, you know, just get by or dropping out of school. Like, you know, we had an earlier caller where we had a conversation about. Anyway, uh, Al in Zanesville, Ohio. Hey, Al, what's on your mind today? I owned a restaurant for 40 years. I sold it a couple years ago before this happened, so I kind of escaped all this. But um, it's more generally talking about capitalism. Uh, these people that flaunt and and brag about capitalism as the answer, when it turns on them, they uh, seek different answers. They usually get some sort of a, some sort of a socialistic, uh, you know, resolve for their problem. Now, workers are experiencing the upside of capitalism for them. They are now, you know, in, in scarcity. So, their value has gone up, and now people are complaining. I mean, you know, legislators are trying to uh, use coercion to get them back to work. But right. it's just capitalism working. You're right. I mean, that's it's supply and demand. Yeah. Yeah. And and, the, and if the cost of labor goes up, the cost of labor goes up. And, you know, I, I know Greenspan used to call that wage inflation. 
Um, I, yeah. I, I would call it moving toward a just society. Al, well said. Yeah. Thank, thank you very much for the call. It's great to hear from you. Jeremy in uh, Vigo County, Indiana. Hey, Jeremy, what's up? Yes. Yes, hello. I uh, disagree with you that uh, that it's wealthy are hoarders. I believe it's more like an akin to uh, game addiction, like check out video game addiction, mm-hmm. but game, adic- game addiction in general, and that they get an endorphin bump anytime they overcome challenges. Well, that's what happens they, with hoarders. Yeah, and it's a high score thing, though, with their net wealth. I think uh, it, that, that it's not just... Oh, so you're saying it's not just OCD, that it's actually it's an actual addiction. Yeah, that's that's my for most of them, not all of them, but like a good chunk of them. That that'd be it. And they're raised in that environment that they're rewarded for, you know, getting you know overcoming certain challenges to right. increase their net wealth or whatever. And 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 they've been playing this game, you know, the wealthy play this game going back probably to the beginning of time. And now we can see it with regular individuals, even in video games, where people get addicted to video games. And it's a human thing, not like an OCD, not a not the bell shaped curve thing, but like anybody I feel could become it. Uh, or, or a large group of people can, be, can become it because it's an addiction to right. that high score, to that net wealth. Right, and we're all, we're all vulnerable, although there's a spectrum of severity of that vulnerability to, those, to anything that just gives us endorphin rushes, you know, and, and yeah. uh, you know, whether, whether it's uh, you know, falling in love or whether it's uh, you know, heroin <laughs> or whether it's yeah. you know, I, cocaine. I suspect you don't... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I suspect you don't play very many video games. Um, I suspect that. I don't know. I don't. But you're, I, you're I right, recommend Jeremy. looking into video game addiction and comparing that mm-hmm. and seeing what your thoughts might be on well, that. Well, it's kind of the same and thing that, as gambling addiction, isn't it? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And that would be a reason why we need a uh, a lower wealth gap, because the higher wealthy people, they're, 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 they see the world as their game, as how I perceive them perceiving it, based on my experiences. I, I'm, I'm not a wealthy person. I've interacted with wealthy people and i've you know i've sure. looked into the stuff but i've also known them and I think you're it's, always a, it's always a gig to them a jeremy gig to I, them. I, always... I have to wrap it up i'm sorry it's the end of the show but i think you're onto something let me recalibrate my thinking that's interesting wealth as an addiction uh it makes a lot of sense anyhow thanks so much for being with us today we'll be back soon <laughs> and, uh, in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us. That includes you. So, you know, be good to yourself and the people around you. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you soon. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 